good to see you all this morning. If you're visiting and I haven't had a chance to introduce myself to you, I'm Jason. I have the honor and privilege of pastoring here at the church, leading with Billy and four other men as elders, and it truly is an honor, and I'm glad you're here. We're going to be in Philippians 2 uh, this morning. We're actually going to be in a lot of different places, but Philippians 2 will be the place we come back to every time, so if you just want to go ahead and open your Bible there and, and mark it. Um, if you uh, ever come to church and leave thinking, I would like to learn more or hear more or discuss more about what was taught on today. I have questions. How does this work out in my real life? I want to let you know that we do that twice a month in the fall and the spring. Uh, we do it in our life groups. Our life groups get together uh, to sit down as a small group and discuss what we teach on Sundays. Uh, and it's a time to, to really ask some hard questions about life and to ask about how the truths of Scripture apply. And so our life groups ministry is kicking off for the spring starting this next weekend. So those of you who are in life groups are already aware of that. It's on the calendar. But if you are not in a life group and that's something you'd like to be a part of, as Joe mentioned earlier, grab a Connect card, uh, indicate on there that you would like to get involved, make sure we have your contact info, and we'll get you connected with the life group. And so um, in addition to uh, talking about the sermon, it's, it's a place to share life, to share struggles, and to celebrate victories together. And so um, this is the place where we celebrate and experience rich community. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Philippians 2 as we continue the sermon series, Unity of Faith. Um, the primary uh, prayer as we move through this series, as we look at these foundational truths of Christianity, what is it that distinguishes Christianity from other faiths and religions, is, uh, is this, that God would use this series to unify us as a church, that God would draw us together on the things that, uh, that we agree on, that we believe together, um, and that would give us a platform then to grow and to even have conversations about things we don't agree with and other theological conversations where we can discuss back and forth, yet they don't mess with our unity. And so this is the place where we're praying God would weld our hearts together in one common mind. And in addition to that, I'm just personally praying that week by week as we address each piece of the statement of faith, that God would speak to you and help put things together for you. And, uh, and, and so today we're going to be talking about the work of the Son and how um, the work of Jesus is distinguished from the work of the Father and the Holy Spirit, specifically what Jesus has done on our behalf. And, uh, and so as we grow up as Christians, as we grow in Christ, we open God's word, we study it day after day, week after week, year after year, we find that we can't get to the end of this inexhaustible truth about God, that an immeasurable God is being described in the scriptures, and every time we open it, we dig into something new, not different, but new and deeper about who God is and what he's done for us and who we are in him. And so my hope is that as we go through these uh, sermons that God would help put together maybe pieces that you've collected over your spiritual journey, maybe into one place and allow you to grow even deeper into your understanding of who God is and what he's done, what he's done for you. And so today we're going to be looking at uh, the work of the Son from Philippians 2. If you want to go ahead and turn there, if you haven't yet, go ahead and do that. Uh, your sermon notes are in front of you. Uh, feel free to jot down questions that you have, things that God points out to you from the scriptures, and then take them with you to life groups. It's a great way to get involved in the conversation by having that there to remember how God maybe spoke to you in the service. And, uh, and all the scriptures that are in your notes there, we're, we're not going to cover all those today. We're going to cover a lot. Uh, but I put those in there for you because we're covering so much that you would have all the, the addresses of scriptures um, that, that would apply to that particular part of the conversation. You could go back if you desire and read more. So 
We are going to cover a lot. Um, before we even start in Philippians 2, just two, two plate things I want to look at. As we think about the work that Jesus has done on our behalf, we saw two weeks ago that, we, that Jesus was involved in creation. So we know that Jesus was involved in creation. Uh, and so, so Jesus coming to earth isn't his first time on the scene doing work for us. However, it's his coming to earth that is distinct from the, the work of the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so just two things I wanted to read uh, from John 1.1, a reminder that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's how far we have to think back if we want to think about what Jesus is doing. I mention that because if we're not careful, we will see Jesus as a temporary being. He was born, and then he died, and then he ascended, and, and we won't see him as eternal, as he truly is, according to the Scriptures. So John says to us, remember that this one that we're talking about who came to earth, he's, he's been here since before creation. He's eternal. Now, in addition to that, um, Isaiah 7, this is a prophecy over six centuries before Jesus comes to earth. In Isaiah 7, 14, we read this prophecy about the one who is to come, the Messiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, that's a very familiar verse for us, especially around the Christmas season. We just sang a piece of that verse as well. And so what is that telling us from 600 plus years before Jesus comes to earth? What is that telling us about the work that Jesus would do? And so first of all, it, it, it really points out really two things. One, he, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So this is gonna, there's going to be a human involvement here in God coming to earth. This Messiah that you're waiting for, that you're looking for, expect there to be a human involvement. He's not just going to show up on a chariot or just you know, appear from the sky, but he's actually going to be born of, of a woman. So there's going to be a human involvement in, in God coming to earth. In addition to that, second thing is this. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So something about this Messiah being born from a human, from a, from a human birth, would mean to us that God's now with us. So we have a strong human element to the Messiah who would come, but a very strong God element, right, to the point where, where, where God would say to us, I'm going to be with you when, when the Messiah comes. Okay, So when we begin to think about who Jesus is, it gives us a sense of his humanity and a sense of his deity before he ever comes to earth. Now we get to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 5. Starting in verse 5, Paul writes these words. Have this mind among yourselves. He's encouraging the believers to look at the example of Jesus and allow that to play out in their everyday lives. And then he's going to describe the work that Jesus has done for us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. First part of verse 7, but he emptied himself. So in your mind, when you think about Jesus and the work he's done for you here on earth, I don't know where the timeline starts for you, but according to what we're reading here in Philippians 2, Jesus' work here on earth actually began with him emptying himself before he was ever born. And the word here literally means to pour out. So Jesus poured something out before he was born here on earth. What did he pour out? Well, first and foremost, his glory. He emptied himself of his glory. He humbled himself, as we'll read, and took the form not just of humans, but, but of a servant, a humble servant. 
So when we think about the work that Christ has done specifically, we need to start there and realize that the first thing he, he did on our behalf is he poured himself out. He emptied himself of his glory and humbled himself as he prepared to be born through a woman as a baby in a manger to walk among us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich beforehand, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now we're not talking about money here. This isn't a verse about currency. Being rich and poor is a metaphor to describe Jesus emptying himself of his glory, becoming poor in glory and humbling himself. That somehow through him, we who are poor might become rich, might become like him in some way. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus says this about himself. He says, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. And then he explains exactly what he means, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, being fully God, the Son of God, at the right hand of God, as he entered into his mission here on earth, he poured out his glory, he humbled himself to the most humble human form. He was born as a baby. And he came to give himself as a servant, as a ransom for many. So something about the work that he does from start to finish is described here as a ransom for many, a ransom for us, which gives us the idea that, that somebody's being held hostage here, right? We think about ransom, we think about paying for somebody who's been kidnapped, taken hostage or enslaved. Is exactly the imagery I think that Jesus wants us to have about his mission here on earth. That you and I, though we walk about here on earth like free people, especially in the free world, and we, we boast of our liberty, in the depths of who we are, there's a slavery, there's a bondage, both to sin and to death. The two things that as hard as you work in life, as moral as you try to be, apart from God working, you can't get free from. It's the shadow of sin and death that's cast over humanity at Genesis 3 at the fall. And so Jesus has come to be a ransom to liberate us from that, to set us free from that captivity. And so he emptied himself. Continuing in verse 7 of Philippians 2, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Now, there's a, there's a big word that we use uh, in theology to describe God becoming man, and we use the, it's the word incarnate, which means to become embodied in human flesh. And so what we're seeing in Christ is God incarnate, okay? God taking on human skin, human flesh. You know, if you, if you had taken an x-ray of Jesus's body, it would have looked like a human x-ray, right? He didn't have special deity DNA or deity bones. He really had flesh and bones like you and I, he, right? He had an immune system. He was prone to get sick. He coughed and maybe even had acne when he was young. We don't know, but he had a human body, a real human body here, human form. He was born in the likeness of men. Galatians 4, 4, we actually read this verse last week, but when the fullness of time had come, so when God said, okay, now it's time to go. 
when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, that's an important part that we need to understand about Jesus' work on our behalf. He didn't come with a pass from the law. He didn't, he didn't get to come to earth and, and not submit himself under the law that you and I are under. Like, okay, so just physiologically, we've already talked about that. Biologically, in his body, when he didn't eat, he got hungry. He was submissive to basic biological laws. He was submissive to basic, like, I understand he had some, some moments where he walked on water and he ascended into heaven, but those were to display his divinity. By and large, he walked subject to gravity, which he invented, okay? But in a, in a bigger sense, he was subject to moral law, okay? He came born under the law that he initiated. He wasn't above the law. He didn't get a pass, and so him being born in human likeness and taking on our flesh meant he took on everything that it means to be human. Matter of fact, Hebrews will say he even knew temptation like you and I know temptation. He was born under the law. John 1 verse 14 says it this way. The word being Jesus, he became flesh, dwelt among us. And then he begins to describe something. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. While he was in human form, there was still something about him that displayed and revealed who God is. That in Christ we see full humanity, but that also in Christ we see divinity. This is where we talk about Jesus being fully God and fully man. Colossians chapter 1, just a couple of verses from Colossians 1 that describe this fully God, fully man, Jesus Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, you and I were born to reflect the image of God. And so what we're hearing here is Jesus came to do what Adam couldn't. Jesus came to do what you and I were, were created to do but have failed at, and that is to bear and reflect the image of God. He is the image of God. Verse 19 for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So think about this in a very similar way. That divinity and humanity collide in your, inside of who you are as a Christ follower. Fully flesh, fully human, yet the spirit of God lives in you. There's a, there's a connection between divinity and humanity there. What we're getting is from, from Jesus is the perfect example of this. God himself dwelling in the flesh we look at Jesus, we get an, 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 a reflection of the invisible God. His character, his compassion, his wisdom, his faithfulness. John chapter 5, the Gospel of John, verse 18, begins to explain that this is really the big issue that the Pharisees had with him. There were a lot of things they picked on, his teaching, they tried to trip him up. Um, they, they, they got onto him for teaching or healing on the Sabbath. And in John 5, and again in John 10, we'll see the real heartbeat behind the issue that the Pharisees had with Jesus when he was here on earth. Verse 18 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That was the real issue that they had with Jesus. Not that he was a profound teacher, not that he was a miracle worker, not that he loved people and he fed people and did all these fantastic things. But the thing that really got the Pharisees is that he claimed to be the son of God, making himself equal with God. Verse chapter 10 of John, the Gospel of John, 
the Jews actually address him. This is verse 33. It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. We're not going to kill you because of your good works, Jesus. That's not what we're upset about. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And we don't get that. We don't like that. And in a sense, you can feel this from the Pharisees. We don't really like Emmanuel. We don't really like God with us. We like God at a distance. We like God giving us systems to obey that we can manipulate and manage and control. We don't like God with us. It's kind of freaking us out, Jesus. So therefore, we're going we're gonna to put you to death. And essentially, what are they saying? We're going to put this to the test. Matter of fact, he's ridiculed, right, on the cross. Why don't you just have God save you? I mean, if this is who you truly are. Just come down. Don't you command some angels to come rescue you off the cross? In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 4, uh, Paul explains what was going on in the hearts of the Pharisees. He says, in their case, the God of this world, being Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Again, Jesus being the full image of God, the Pharisees couldn't see it. Those who executed him couldn't see it. All they saw was his humanity. And you know, if they'd really read their Old Testament well, they memorized it, but if they would have read it well, they would have read things like Emmanuel, God with us, and they would have expected God to show up in human form. So now Jesus is born, he's on earth, born as a baby, grows up as a little kid. We begin to look at his work here on earth. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So his life here on earth was marked with obedience. Now we really haven't, even though the word death has come up, we haven't specifically got to death on a cross. All we know is that God has subjected himself to humanity. The full experience begins with birth, ends with death. And that mark from birth to death was marked with obedience. So we're looking at Jesus' work here on earth as he perfectly obeyed the plan and the will of the Father. Now, from the beginning, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 17, he said this about his own purpose and his mission. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He was born under the law, right? And he, come, he came to be perfectly obedient to the law. Now, we get to Luke 24, the end of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has resurrected, and he tells his disciples, everything written in the law and the prophets was written about me. It was all about me. You guys have been reading this wrong. The reason you didn't recognize me is because you didn't read, you didn't read the law and the prophets right. If you think about how Jesus um, was, he was cornered one time by the Pharisees to, to give the most important law, and he sums up the law in two ways. First commandment. Greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all that you are, your heart, your mind, your soul, everything that you have. But the second is like it. Love people as yourself. So Jesus came displaying obedience to the Father, right? Loving God perfectly with all that he was. But then as we look at how he interacted with humanity, he, he perfectly obeyed the horizontal part of the law, to love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew chapter 9 records us an example of this from Matthew chapter 9, 
Verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see that compassion, perfectly horizontally loving others as himself. And so in his healing of people, it wasn't just him putting on a show of miracles, right? He, he, it came out of his motive to where his heart broke and wrenched for those who were afflicted, who were like sheep without a shepherd. This was played out perfectly in his obedience here on earth as he walked humbly from birth to death. But then in verse 8, Paul says, oh yeah, and even, so not just birth to death, but even death on a cross. And so we get to the work of the cross. And the work of the cross is not fully realized until the resurrection. So when we think about the work of the cross, we must think, right, from from Friday to Sunday, from sacrifice, suffering, brutality, death, burial, and resurrection. And so Paul wants us to think about his work, even his death on a cross, In 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul, in verse 21, describes the death of Jesus on the cross this way. For our sake, whose sake? Our sake. For our sake, he, being God, made him, being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. His perfect obedience. So what happened at the cross? God the Father was making him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, a lot is summarized there in that one verse. A lot is summarized there in that one verse. But somehow, through the work that Jesus did on the cross, right? he experienced a very brutal death displaying sin, displaying the weight of sin, the punishment of sin, the gore of sin, the brutality of sin. It was all displayed on him when he hung on the cross. But somehow, through that work on the cross, you and I were made righteous. Now remember, earlier we read, he came to ransom us from our slavery to sin and death. And so, Romans 8, Paul, the Apostle Paul, continued to write and describe the work that Jesus did on the cross. This is 8.3, says this. Remember, Jesus was born under the law. So Paul says in verse 3 of Romans 8, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So we had the law before Jesus came. The problem was you and I were the ones trying to obey it. And so our flesh weakened the reality of what the law was supposed to do, to illuminate God's glory, his character, his righteousness. And you and I, living under the law, we reflected something different. We were lawbreakers. We reflected unfaithfulness, right? Disobedience. So God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What did he do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he looked like us, in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. So Jesus came, he looked like us, but in him he reflected, he did with the law what the law was supposed to do, reflect the character of God. Again from Romans chapter 5, verse 19. Speaking first of Adam, for as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's what Adam did. That's that's you and I in the story. So by the one man, Jesus, 
by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. How does this work? Um, 1 Corinthians 15 is where we'll, we'll go next. And you may want to turn here. We're only going to look at a couple more scriptures this morning. So how does this work? What are we seeing on the cross? What we're seeing on the cross is the wrath of God. Okay, There's really no other accurate way to describe it. And when you hear wrath, you think anger. Well, one of the questions that we have when we read about the wrath of God is, I thought God was loving. How can God be a loving God, right? That his, part of his essence, his nature, and yet still display wrath? And see, what we see at the cross, and I'll explain how I believe this works, is really a collision between God's love and his wrath. It's where they meet. Now think about it like this. A lot of married folks in the room, so you'll hopefully be able to relate with this analogy. Imagine you catch your spouse being unfaithful to you. Wrath, right? Anger. Burning anger would well up. Proportionate to what? Your love. It's the violation of your love that would drive you to anger in that moment. Now imagine, because we're not even really there yet in the, in the analogy to display why God has wrath in his heart. Imagine this. Your spouse doesn't try to hide it from you, but openly walks in unfaithfulness from you. And after you catch them in unfaithfulness, you forgive them and invite them back in. And then after you do that, they, after a period of time, walk away from you again in unfaithfulness, not hiding it from you. Full sight, full view, walks away from you. Time and time again. The wrath that you would feel would be in proportionate to your love and how greatly your love has been violated. This is the summary of your Old Testament. Did you know that? The unfaithfulness of Israel is compared in the Old Testament to a spouse who's unfaithful to a faithful husband. Matter of fact, one a specific prophet, Hosea, is given just to tell this story, to display the unfaithfulness of us. Our unfaithfulness to God is like a spouse who's been unfaithful to her husband. And in, in, diso- in complete disrespect and unfaithfulness, not even trying to hide it, we walk away. And we spit at the mercy of our faithful lover. And time and time again, God welcomes us back. And we become, again, unfaithful and welcomes us back and unfaithful. Then we begin to understand how God can be loving and yet display wrath. We kindled the wrath of God in our unfaithfulness. Time and time again, generation after generation after generation. We did that. And so what we see at the cross, because we remember from last week, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. So the point of the cross was initiated by God's love. But why was it so brutal? Because what Jesus was doing, when we read Paul talking about how he became sin, what we believe and what we understand he means is this. He fully bore the wrath that you and I deserved. That's why it was so brutal and so ugly. Imagine what you would do, (laughs) some of you, to the person that your spouse is being unfaithful with. Multiply that times infinity, and what we're seeing displayed on the cross is God saying, listen, I have kindled up some wrath, and it's brutal wrath. Yet, yet I'm going to be the one who absorbs it. 
What you're going to see in my son on the cross is really what you've earned. And he's going to take your place and absorb your wrath. So in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, meaning it was God's plan. And he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is primarily about the resurrection. And Paul even talks about the authenticity of the resurrection. He gives a list of witnesses of the resurrection. But the point is to get to the end of 15 to explain to us what the resurrection means for us. Now think about it. God's son subjected himself to humanity, birth to death, even death on a cross, a brutal death, a punishment death, right? He subjected himself to that, that he would bear God's punishment for our sins. He did this in perfect obedience to the Father. Now remember, we were from the very beginning, Jesus set out to ransom us from something. What did he set out to ransom us from? Our slavery and our bondage to sin and death. The two things that with all of our technology and innovation and, and financial um, stability, and, right, with everything we have in our power, we can't overcome those two things in humanity. We can't. We figured out how to defy gravity. We figured out how to pull molecules apart and manipulate them, how to synthesize basic elements into unnatural things and food and fuels and different things. Like We've mastered a lot here on earth as human beings, but two things we can't master sin and death. So as Jesus dies on the cross, he is taking our punishment for our sin, but he's doing something else. He's actually about to go toe-to-toe with our enemy. Now, this is, if you think about it, what Jesus ultimately came to accomplish was to go to battle on our behalf. And, and And there was, and the skirmish almost got kicked up a little bit early in his ministry. All the way back in Matthew, we see Jesus going out to the desert and he's fasting And the enemy comes to him and tries to pick a fight with him early on. Jesus doesn't give in. Why? Because the time wasn't right. Right? And so he combats the enemy with the truth of God's scripture. And ultimately, as he's saying, it's not time for us to go to war yet. I've got some obeying God to do here. And then so what happens when Jesus goes to the grave is that he didn't stay there. What happens? Jesus stares our enemy face to face, eye to eye. He takes on the only two things that we can't overcome on himself, and he defeats them. See, it's in the grave and the resurrection of Jesus that death dies. That sin is finally unbroken. And so in the resurrection of Jesus, this isn't just another miracle to throw in with his miracles. This is where Jesus says to all humanity, I am the Son of God. Remember what he said to Pilate? Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. He was doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so at the end of chapter 15 of 2 Corinthians, that's where we read very powerful verses, 55 and 56. Because of the resurrection, this is what we say. O death, where is your victory? Before the resurrection, we had, we had, there was no opportunity for us to say something like that. Right? To say to death, where's your victory? Where's your final word? 
But in Christ's resurrection, we say, oh, death, where's your victory now? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the work that the Son came to accomplish on our behalf. And so for us as Christians, he's not just a rabbi, not just a a prophetic teacher. He is God incarnate. He is God among us, God with us, fully God, fully man, taking on our flesh, tasting our tears, experiencing our suffering and our pain. Jesus wept. He had compassion. He knows what it means to be human. Yet, at the end of his journey, he did the thing that we couldn't do. He overcame sin and death. The rest of Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has, therefore, God has highly exalted him, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the last thing for Jesus to do after his resurrection is to ascend back to where he started from. Remember, he emptied himself and poured himself out. In Acts um, chapter 1, these will be the last verses we read this morning. In Acts chapter 1, we get a record of this. Uh, Luke, the gospel writer, he's here, and he's writing down what happens at the ascension of Jesus. So let's just read these few verses together. Starting in verse 6. So... When they had come together, this is after the resurrection, they had come together, the believers got together, primarily the disciples and the other believers. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They were going all the way back into the Old Testament, looking for this perfect restoration of Israel. Is now the time? Are you ready to go? You defeated death. That was awesome, by the way. Gives us hope that when we die, that death doesn't have the final word. That was really cool. So is now the time when you're going to blow this thing up? Like, is this, is this when we need to crown you, put the robe on you, hail you? Is this the time? Look how Jesus responds. He said to them, verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But here's what is going to happen. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is next Sunday, by the way. We're getting a little bit into next Sunday. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what, this is what outlines our mission as a church. This is what Jesus told them. Two things. Holy Spirit's going to come on you, and power, and you're going to be my witnesses. That's what will distinguish you as my church. Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will take on my mission. In verse 9, and when he had said these things, so this was his final expression in human form, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? So evidently, like they were so bewildered by what just happened. Like nobody wanted to take their eyes off of heaven. Is he about to come back? What's about to happen? That was cool. And so two men in white robes, I guess the implication here is they're angels from heaven, 
say to these guys as they're gazing up into the sky, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And we get a description of this in Revelation. The end of your Bible ends with this beautiful description of Jesus coming, not born through a virgin in human form, but coming in full deity, full on, ready to make war, to end the battle. And this is Revelation 19, 20, 21, 22, describing the return of our Messiah, our King, and our Savior. So at Solid Rock, our statement of faith when we get to the work of Jesus reads this way. We believe Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. He is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person and two natures. Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah King and was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. In perfect obedience to the Father, he lived a sinless life and according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge, was crucified under both Roman and Jewish authority, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest, advocate, and judge. We believe that Jesus Christ satisfied the Father's wrath towards us as our representative and substitute by shedding his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. And that's the work of Jesus the Son. Now, what I want to do now is I want to end with an invitation to you. You see, Ephesians 1 is another overview of the work the Son has done in our lives and for us. And there's two statements in there that really allow us to understand what this means for us. So over 10 times... The work of Jesus is mentioned in the first 14 verses of Ephesians. But there's two statements where Paul explains all these promises, all these spiritual blessings are for those who have hoped in him and have believed in him. That's why we are saved by faith and faith alone. So the invitation to you today is that all this work that God has done on your behalf, it's, it's right here for you to take today, all of it. And it's all or nothing. You don't get to come and be partially forgiven of your sins. It's all or nothing, right? It's, it's, and it's more than just forgiven. It's set free, right? It, and, and so it's not just come to God and get blessed for this life. God's blessings are for eternal life. It's all or nothing with him. And God has extended an invitation to you today that if you have not trusted and believed in him, that today would be the day that you would trust him. I say, okay, I believe. I believe you are the son of the living God. I don't fully get how it worked because I'm, I'm, I'm human, I'm part of your creation, so I can't fully get how you work, but I believe it. And upon believing, you will be saved, ransomed, set free from sin and death, and brought into an eternal relationship with the Father. Ephesians 1 says he adopts you into the family at that moment. So what do I need to pray? What do I need to say? What do I need to do? There are options here. If you would like for somebody to pray with you, as Joe mentioned earlier, our prayer partners are here and will be standing at the front and the back, and they would love nothing more than to pray with you about making this decision. You could stay seated. This is really between you and God. This is you and faith coming to God and saying, okay, I believe now. I believe, and I trust you. And if you want to do that in your own words and in your own way, you're free to do that. I would ask that you'd let us know. 
Just let us know so we can celebrate with you, we can encourage you, we can pray for you, and we can walk with you. But you can do, make that decision right where you're seated. You might want to grab somebody you know who's a Christian who invited you or somebody you came with and say, hey, would you come talk with me? Um, our prayer and counseling rooms are open for that. Uh, there's three of them over there, so there's a good chance that one of them will be open. Feel free to go in there and just talk more about what it means to be a Christian. But really, this is the pinnacle of our faith. That this is what distinguishes us from other faiths. We believe that Jesus is, was the Son of the living God, and he died on our behalf, and that through faith we are saved. I'm going to pray for us now and allow you to respond however God leads you to. If prayer partners want to come up and Jason and the worship team want to come back, uh, we'll do that.